Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. We're very pleased to say that back by popular demand is our Your Questions Answered pod. We will combine this with news as always. And coming up, we have news from Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, and of course, a variation of other subjects. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me, as always, is Duncan Castles. Duncan, it's great to have the uh, your questions answered back on the podcast. Um, it has been some time since we've done this, but pleased to say that uh, people have responded to the request for them to send in what they're thinking about in their numbers. And uh, we can do so, obviously, by combining our news information with the questions we're going to start with Hassan Al-Habib, who has um, said to us, Hi, Ian and Duncan. Really enjoyed Tuesday's episode, particularly the in-depth analysis uh, of the nature and potential outcomes following Virgil van Dijk's injury and the identification of Upamecano at Liverpool's top target. Does he have a release clause? Is the player aware of the interest? Thank you. Well, Hassan, we can tell you that, yes, it's true. We have checked with the various people who know these things. And uh, Dayo Upamakano does have a release clause of around 40 million euros. Um, it is able to be activated at any point during next summer's window. And what's interesting about this, Duncan, is that uh, obviously with the injury to Fabinho, who has been playing centre-back since Van Dijk's injury uh, and may be out for some time. We don't know yet because the swelling uh, on his hamstring has not gone down. Therefore, the scan will not take place until later to find out the extent of the injury. Is that there has already been some friction between the Liverpool coaching staff and the recruitment staff regarding what and how they should proceed regarding the January window and the absence of Van Dijk uh, in terms of recruiting. The club are not keen to spend a lot of money in the January window. They do not see the value in doing so. They think they will have uh, a gun pointed to their head, as most clubs do, especially big clubs, with regards to a price for a player like Upamagano. Um Interesting, of course, he will play against Manchester United for RB Leipzig, we expect, uh, uh, in the Champions League. And uh, it's that, yeah, Klopp once again finds himself uh, expressing his wish, Duncan, that uh, he should and needs to be furnished with a player who can bring quality to his squad, but in this case, bring cover. Apparently, you know, he needs to have another centre-back. It looks like Joe Gomez is going to be the only senior centre-back available to him for the game against West Ham next weekend. This is not a situation you'd ne- normally expect the champions of the Premier League to be in. No, it's not. Um, I can tell you Fabinho is due to be scanned this afternoon, um, so they don't know the extent of that uh, injury, the extent of the damage to the hamstring. They'll obviously be hoping 
that's as minimal as possible and they are not under pressure to push him back early. But um, it's further complicated what was already a difficult situation. As you've said, as we reported last week, um, this was an area that Klopp wanted to strengthen in, in the summer window um, because he was down to those three senior centre-backs, Virgil van Dijk, who plays every game, um, every important game when fit. Uh, John Matip, who has been a secondary choice for a while. And um, Joe Gomez, who has had issues with form pretty much since he injured um, himself in the previous season and, and certainly doesn't seem ready to lead that defence by himself. Um, look, we can look at what happened in the summer and, and this wasn't the only area that Klopp was pressing for improvements in. He wanted a forward. Uh, he wanted Thiago in midfield. He got Thiago in the end, you know, of significant transfer fee, very big wages on a player who will not have resale value. He got um, Diogo Jota done very quickly and, and, and Jota's come in and already had an impact on the team. So when it, when it comes to these battles, he's got quite a good track record of, of winning them with, with Fenway Sports Group. I think what could be problematic for them is they're, they're entering into a similar situation they had with Timo Werner in that, Werner was the forward that Klopp wanted before they ended up going for Jota. They had that deal in place in, in terms of convincing the player that Liverpool was the best place to go to. Then Chelsea came in and stole the player by activating the release clause quickly and offering very big wages. Um, now you've got Upamecano, who is, as you reported last week, the, the preferred option to come into the defence. It makes a lot of sense because, as we explained in the podcast, the, the gravity of Van Dijk's injury at his age is such that you don't know if he'll ever come back the same player, whether he'll come back with the same level of pace. And, and these complex knee injuries, um, specialists in recovery will tell you it will take, well, you can get these players back on the pitch sometimes as quickly as six months. Don't expect them to recover the performance level they had before the injury for 18 months. So given that Liverpool are short at centre-back anyway, that the, the, the rational approach is to go for a top-level centre-back, bring him into the squad, have him there, Hope Van Dyke comes back at as high a level as possible and then you, you have the two together and you are not handicapped too much. It's crucial to the way Liverpool play. Again, as we've explained, um, Virgil van Dyke's pace allows them to play, push far, far higher up the pitch than they would to be able to do without him and it allows Andy Robertson, Trent Alexander-Arnold to play effectively as wingers, creative wingers. Now, if you take that option away or you make it more dangerous for Liverpool to do that because the defenders aren't as good at recovery, then you you change the way Liverpool play and you make a fundamental difference to the system that allowed them to win the Premier League by such a huge margin last season. Um, with Upamecano, you've got a player who has signed a new contract with that relatively low release clause in the expectation that he'll be leaving Leipzig in within the next year. It's the same strategy as Leipzig used with Timo Werner, um, give them an improved contract, uh, release clause, and prepare yourself for the player leaving, but get that final season out of them. Liverpool are by no means the only club interested in signing the player. There is interest from Manchester United. 
Um, he fits the profile of centre-back that the Gunnar Solskjaer wants to bring in to add to his vast array of centre-backs that he already has at the club, but more importantly, to compensate for the mistake that was made in signing Harry Maguire in that he, they bought a player, most expensive signing, um, defensive signing in the history of the game, huge salary, with the idea that he would shore up their defence to play um, attacking football high up the pitch, which was what the, the, the system that Solskjaer was selling to the supporters. And anyone with any um, you know, reasonable football knowledge will know that Maguire is not the defender for that kind of game. He's good if you are playing deep um, near your own goal uh, and, uh, and allow the other team to come on to you and you use his aerial strength and his ability to pass the ball. But if you ask him to play high up the pitch and expose him, he gets caught out. He's positionally questionable and he doesn't have the recovery pace. So now Solskjaer wants another centre-back in and Upamecano fits the bill for them. That, I think, complicates it for Liverpool because, you, as I say, you're getting to that situation where it's not just down to whether Klopp can convince the player to come and, and sell Liverpool as the club to go to. It's whether you can get the financial terms and get the deal done quick enough to prevent one of your competitors from taking this, the player, in this case, a direct English competitor, Manchester United, although I say direct English competitor, are they a direct competitor for the title? They don't seem to be that at the moment. And, and I think that is one of the advantages that Liverpool will have in this. If FSG are prepared to support the manager, then Klopp can certainly sell to Upamecano. You want to come to a club in England and win things? Well, you're far better coming to Liverpool, uh, Premier League champions, previous season Champions League winners, than you are going to Manchester United, who in the last seven years, their best finish in the Premier League is second, and they've only done that once, and are on the longest um, trophy drought in three decades. Um, but they lost out to Chelsea in the summer, um, Will they lose out again on Upamecano when their, their needs are even more pronounced in this January window? We have a question, Duncan, from a good friend in South Korea. Uh, Bolt from the Blue, um, Manchester City fan, who has been very, very uh, adroit, if you like, uh, or adroit at, uh, in his questioning. Can City ever buy a left back? Well, we know they can buy a left back, but he obviously means can they buy a decent one. Will Pep extend his contract and who will replace Aguero? Thank you for the answers. Um, I think the Guardiola one's probably the most interesting one, Duncan, because we know he's in the last year of his contract. Uh, it's our information that um, despite invitations to extend his contract, which were issued both last season and in the summer and since, Guardiola has uh, effectively straight batted that and said, no, I've not made a decision. Now, we've seen this before um, with Guardiola. Uh, he is now in his fifth year at Manchester City, which is longer he's spent at any club. He did four years at Barcelona and three years at Bayern Munich. Uh, and in his last year at Bayern Munich, which was the last year of his original contract in the January before his contract expired, he went to the Bayern Munich Christmas party. And when asked by uh, President 
Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Um, so are you going to stay? Are you going to go? He said, no, I'm going to go. Uh, and Rummenigge said, where? And he said, Manchester, but didn't say if it was City or United. So uh, he does have a tendency to set himself a tenure uh, limit at any club. Um, he has surprised many people who are close to him by staying longer at Manchester City than he has anywhere else. However, um, he does also have a option in his contract, as we have reported in the Transfer Window podcast, to become head coach at uh, City Football Group's sister club, which, of course, is New York City, um, a place where he has uh, a home, a family home, where he spent his sabbatical year uh, before joining Bayern Munich. Um, It does seem to me that he is effectively paving the way for his exit. Uh, We've already reported extensively on the fact that City have been talking to Maurizio Pochettino and his representatives with regards to what can happen next regarding Guardiola and Pochettino replacing him. Uh, what's your view, Duncan? Would you say that it what would be... If, let's just say this. If you're a betting man, which no, you're not, uh, what would you say the odds are on Pep staying at City for longer than this season? Look, they they haven't started this season well and there are extenuating circumstances in that they had one of the shorter pre-seasons um, because they played into the, the, the Champions League tournament. Um, and of course, they've had those important injuries to both of their strikers, Sergio Aguero and Gabriel Jesus. Um, interestingly, uh, we saw Pep Guardiola confirm a story uh, we reported during the, the the window that they he had wanted another striker in, in the summer and that they had tried to do it and they had failed to find the right individual to bring in. And, and I think, you know, going on to that question of who replaces Sergio Aguero, it's I think the key thing here is finding the right individual when they can. Um, they have been considering letting Gabriel Jesus go for a while. They had a an offer, not this summer transfer window, the previous summer transfer window from Borussia Dortmund that they accepted and, and Gabriel Jesus refused to go. I think in Manchester City's ideal scenario, they would retain Aguero, give him a new contract and then bring in a top level striker to play alongside him and, and allow Jesus to go um, because he hasn't quite hit the levels they expected when they brought him from Brazil and beat, beat off a lot of uh, competition uh, to get him to the club. I think um, Jean-Felix is still a very viable candidate for Manchester City in the next summer window. It's a player they wanted to buy at that point when they accepted the bid for Gabriel Jesus, player they looked again at this summer. Um, if they can manufacture a situation where he's still unhappy at Atletico Madrid and he's available for a reasonable price. He does fit um, with the model they want to develop. So so that is uh, a factor there. In terms of what Guardiola does, I think, I think you're right to highlight the fact that he does not last long at any club and people have been surprised how long he has been at Manchester City. 
I, I think if you talk to any of the players who work with him at Barcelona and Bayern Munich, they will tell you that he is a very demanding coach and while brilliant, while able to teach them things that they've not been taught before, get them playing in ways that they haven't played before, he is tiring to work with. And um, you know, Carlo Ancelotti, for example, when he came at Bayern Munich, one of the first things he noticed was how fatigued, mentally fatigued the players were after three years with him. You've got um, Danny Alves, for example, in our, in our friend Graham Hunter's great documentary on, on Barcelona, talking about um, how much he loved Guardiola and what he would do for him and how he would uh, jump out of the stands if he asked him to jump out of the stands. But by the final year, he'd maybe think a little bit more carefully about wh- how he was going to get down to the pitch if uh, Guardiola asked him to do that. And and that's from a great loyalist of, of Guardiola's. So I think that's an issue here. But you can look at the table and say they're in 13th place. They've already dropped uh, points only won two of their five games, only scored eight goals in five games, and, and they're not playing the football we'd expect them to play. But you can also look at the table another way and see if they win their game in hand, they'll have 11 points and they'll be just two points off Liverpool and Everton at the top of the table. Um, four points behind Aston Villa if Aston Villa win their game in hand, and I don't think anyone's expecting Aston Villa to carry on through and, and win the Premier League title. It is looking like being a very open Premier League because of the strange start we've had and because of the injuries suffered by Liverpool. So there is the possibility that everything resolves itself. He wins the title. Um, He finally sorts out the club's problems, his problems essentially in the Champions League and they get uh, past the quarterfinals and get to a final and then, then his mood changes and uh, and a new contract suddenly appears uh, an appealing thing for him. But the mood music at present is that, as you report, that uh, City are struggling to get him to extend his contract and they're looking at options because they they know what he is like. Chikibiristan knows Guardiola very well and he knows there is the possibility that at some point Guardiola will say, I am... I've had enough, I'm going. And they have to have a replacement lined up uh, for that next campaign. As a major force in European and world football, City have to prepare, obviously, for the potential exit of Guardiola because they need to recruit someone of the highest level uh, in order to maintain their level of performance and success. It was mentioned to me, Duncan, um, in the summer, and this was before City exited the Champions League, but someone close to Guardiola, and again, this was an opinion, but it was someone close to the manager, said that if they had gone on to win the Champions League, it was his expectation that Guardiola would leave at that point, having achieved everything that he had been asked to do um, at City and then would take another uh, break from football before deciding about his next job. So if that were the case, then that doesn't seem to me too unrealistic with regards to... You remember when Fergie was going to retire Mm. in 2012 and City won 
the league with the Aguero goal uh, in added time against uh, Queen's Park Rangers, wasn't it? Um, and he went home that night and said to his wife, Kathy, that I can't, I can't leave with, with them being City, being crowned champions. I have to, I have to go again, which he did. And then won the title in 2013 and then retired. Um, does seem to be something about Guardiola and Ferguson that there's a mirror image there. It's like, you know, he didn't win the title. He didn't win the Champions League. He doesn't want to go out on a low. So he, he will stick, he, he's going to stick around and do everything he can to try and win that trophy, which means he can leave on a, on a high. Rather, rather than on a defeat or a low. There's, there's definitely that element. I think it's a good thing to point out where, where he, you could run the argument the other way and say if he wins the league again, if he restores Manchester City to the top of English football, which there is the opportunity to do because of Liverpool's struggles, and he does what was expected of him in the Champions League, then yes, go out in a high. I think he's a different character to Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I think he's, he's a more emotional certainly a more insecure individual than Ferguson was. Um, he can be very bloody-minded, but I don't think it, it goes across all aspects of his personality. Um, and let's look at what happened at Barcelona and the way he exited Barcelona, which was to resign the day or the day after he was beaten by uh, Jose Mourinho's Real Madrid to what was a, a title full of, of records created by Real Madrid in terms of points, um, wins and goals scored um, and walked out, essentially walked out as soon as that was confirmed um, and, and told the players that was the case. So you, you have there the, the alternative um, exit scenario, which is Guardiola thinking if he cannot get them back this season, um, right, I can't do any more with these players. They are tired of me. I am tired of this club and where I am. I need to take a break. I need to go elsewhere. Um, and and not having that Ferguson scenario of, of, of I'll give it one more year, which maybe that's what happened this last summer. Maybe that was the one more year for, for Pep Guardiola. And we'll see if he can turn that one more year into the success that was expected of him. Um, with, remember, the greatest ever resources any football manager has ever had. Um, a club remodelled in his image um, in a way that has never happened at a top-level club before. He's had the perfect platform to turn Manchester City into the best, most successful club in European football. Um, this might well be the last chance to prove he's actually capable of doing that. And do we have a, a word about left backs in Manchester City, or are we just going to leave that with Bolt from the Blue uh, to figure it out for himself? Maybe Manchester City will sign a left back that works when they get rid of the coach who cannot get the majority of his very expensive defensive signings to work in his team. I mean, it's over half a billion euros spent on, I think, nine defenders. Um, and they're just the, the more expensive ones. That's not every single defender that's been signed and goalkeeper in his period at the club. And the majority of them have been failures. So maybe 
um, the left back situation will be removed once the manager, who is extremely demanding in the way he expects defenders to play, goes and you get someone who, um, who provides a platform where it's easier for a left back to succeed. Well, as you all know, we get lots and lots of um, questions about Manchester United and lots and lots of um, answers that we try and give you as well. That's certainly been the case uh, on your questions answered when we put the request out. And uh, Duncan, there's uh, sort of um, three different questions here on Manchester United. I'm going to take the most constructive one first uh, before um, putting to you the two other ones regarding Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and uh, your very friendly relationship with him. Uh, I'm going to ask you uh, from Trevor at Trevi7, if Ole has the luxury of putting Cavani, Alex Tellez, Donny van de Beek and Paul Pogba on the bench in the game against Chelsea, which of course he did, does this mean you know, just finally have a, a squad who have depth? Well, actually, he didn't put Alex Telesh on the bench against Chelsea, <laughs> which is a measure of, of how deep his squad is. The, the, Telesh wasn't included in the squad. Anthony Martial obviously wasn't because he was suspended after his red card. You've got an international goalkeeper in Sergio Romero who's not even registered for the Premier League anymore because they have Dean Henderson, who was on the bench. Um, I actually watched that game and was thinking... Exactly that, um, because you have the first changes Solskjaer makes in a in a match in an attempt to go and win the game was to bring on Paul Pogba, most expensive player in the history of English football, and Adinson Cavani, one of the top uh, centre forwards in in world football over the last decade, uh, as a double substitution. Then his next and third substitution is Mason Greenwood, who is, I would say, the most talented young player in the Premier League, certainly English young player in the Premier League at present and has um, an amazing career in front of him. And uh, and the guys left on the bench were Donny van de Beek, um, player that Real Madrid wanted in their midfield and had a deal in place and weren't able to complete it because of financial concerns, um, which allowed Manchester United to step in and take him. Nemanja Matic, uh, who I think if you look through the statistics, the better performances that Manchester United delivered last season were when Matic was in the team and, and playing that holding role. And, and also they gave a, a very substantial, lucrative new contract too during the season. Dean Henderson, another player uh, not acquired at massive expense, but retained at massive expense uh, by giving him the, the contract and the promise that he would be able to compete head-to-head -head with David De Gea for the, the starting slot. And then Axel Tuanzebi, who um, was the, the darling of the of the English press after his performance in, in Paris and is, is very highly rated by Solskjaer, obviously highly rated enough to be selected ahead of uh, Tellez on the bench. So, you know, we've heard this argument quite a lot. It's one of the many excuses that have been put forward for Solskjaer's um, points total in the Premier League last season, inability to win a trophy in his time at, at Manchester United is that he only had the 11 players he was starting with and there was no there was no one to come on and no one to make tactical changes with. Certainly that argument doesn't apply anymore. Um, when you look at the bench they had against Chelsea, 
the player's not on the bench. He has a very deep bench. He has a lot of options to play with. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that argument needs to be deleted from the, the excuse list that's used uh, to uh, to try and uh, keep Solskjaer away from criticism by his uh, his many friends in in the media. There's been a lot of um, speculation about Van der Beek's relationship with Solskjaer and whether or not Solskjaer actually wanted Van der Beek. And we know, as we had said on the pod during the summer, that um, Solskjaer had specifically requested a centre-back and an experienced right-winger, i.e. Sancho, who could hit the ground running. Instead, he got two teenagers uh, who've got no experience in the Premier League and no centre-back. Um, he did get a central midfielder, which a lot of people would say when you've got Bruno Fernandes, Paul Pogba, Scott McTominay, Fred, um, why did he need another one? Uh, and Van der Beek, of course, has played, I think, Duncan, did you say 59 minutes so yes. far this season in the Premier League? And looks a very disconsolate figure sitting in the stand because he's not allowed to sit on the bench, obviously, because of uh, social distancing rules. Um, a player who's used to playing every game at Ajax. Uh, we've also had um, quite a lot of former Ajax players in, uh, who've said that they don't understand why he went to United uh, because his talent will be wasted there, etc., etc. Uh, you've obviously been speaking to your contact at Ajax. Um, what, what was the feeling with regards to Van de Beek's mood in terms of how things are going for him at Old Trafford. Yeah, look, he's. I think he's been assured by Solskjaer that he will get more playing time. Um, he's saying that he's happy at the club and that uh, he's being treated well by Manchester United. So the so the entry to English football has has been good from that perspective. Obviously, he wants to play more football. Uh, I'm told that he's not particularly impressed by what is being said about him and, in fact, was annoyed about Patrice Evra's um, commentary on Sky Sports where he said that, uh, asked why Manchester United have bought him and, um, and said he's watching the game from the stand every game. We don't need him. That's the truth. Uh, and, you know, Patrice... Evra had to, well, went on his social media account and clarified that he wasn't opposed to Donny van de Beek as a, as a player, um, uh, but said, look, you have Fred, Scott McTominay and the Manu Matic, you love them or you hate them. When we have to play a big game and we have to be strong, compact and run everywhere, they always deliver. This is my opinion. Donny van de Beek is better than Paul Pogba. No, different player, but no. Bruno Fernandes, no, he's a good player. Um, so that that has caused some issues, and I, and I think Solskjaer has caused some issues for himself here in the, in the limited amount of playing time that Van de Beek has had. As you say, it's fifty nine minutes Premier League football. He's eighteenth of the twenty players Solskjaer has used so far in the Premier League this season in terms of minutes played. He scored in his debut, um, coming off the bench against Crystal Palace, and gave them a chance of of getting a draw in that game. And that's actually the most minutes he's had in any Premier League game. He played 23 minutes in that one. Next match, he got one minute against Brighton. 
Uh, game after that, 22 minutes against Tottenham when the when the match was already dead. And interestingly, even though Solskjaer took Bruno Fernandes, his best player, off at half-time, um, after Fernandes came off the pitch angry with the performance, uh, Van de Beek wasn't brought on immediately and, and uh, just brought on for those last 22 minutes. He then got 14 minutes against Newcastle in which he came off the bench and I would argue won the game for them in the, the way he retained possession and set up um, the goal that Bruno Fernandes scored. Although, you know, Bruno Fernandes and Marcus Rashford obviously had a big part to play, but Van de Beek's um, quality in midfield and, and use of the ball was certainly fundamental to that goal that was, was pivotal to a win when Solskjaer badly needed it and then doesn't play at all against Chelsea. Um, you'd say from the way he's played, and you certainly say from the, the, the way he's uh, been in his career so far, that he deserves a place and deserves more time in the Manchester United team. There is a, this, this preconception, and I think Patrice Evra has expressed it there, that um, he has to play instead of Pogba or Bruno Fernandes. Well, yes, his preferred position and the position he was playing at Ajax at the end of his time there was as a number 10, um, pretty much the role Bruno Fernandes is playing at the moment. But he can also play and has played a lot at number eight, which is where Paul Pogba is playing when he's coming off the bench. Remember, Paul Pogba hasn't played in recent, hasn't started in recent matches for Manchester United. So Solskjaer is sidelining him and picking McTominay and Fred instead of Van de Beek. And Van de Beek can also play as a number six. He can play as a holding midfielder. He has quite extensive experience of that. So if you wanted to pair all three of your expensive signings in midfield, that can be done, um, but Solskjaer isn't doing it um, and is having to fight some fires and saying that he is very, very important to Manchester United and, and criticising um, ex-Manchester United players for uh, commenting on his absence from the team. But you know, to go back to this original question, uh, one of the comments he made about Van de Beek uh, in the past few days is it says a lot about our depth of quality that we don't have to use them in every game. It says it all about our ambitions. So just underline, let's put that squad depth excuse to bed because even Solskjaer is talking about the depth of quality he has available to him now. Solskjaer criticising ex-Man United players, something which doesn't happen the other way around very often, has to be said. Um, so we'll take the two uh, rather interesting other questions on Man United now, Duncan. Um, Chile Campeon at M. Sandrino says, what will it take for Ole to be sacked? Um, I think it will take a combination of circumstances which involve him failing to qualify Manchester United for Champions League. Um and probably failing to win trophies. I, you know, this is about the Glazers. It is about the priority being to make money from the club. And to do that, they need to qualify for the Champions League. And Solskjaer managed to get them in um, at, right at the death last season. Um, if he'd failed to do that, 
he, his position was in jeopardy because it would have cost them money. As long as you can keep them in the Champions League, as long as a large chunk of the Manchester United support remain supportive of Solskjaer, then he is the cheap option in terms of salary. He's a cheap option in terms of um, not verbalising his requests for uh, improvements in the transfer market, not complaining about what they do. In fact, repeatedly stating that they've put lots of money into the club and they can't be criticised for their investment into the club. So he, he knows that he would not be Manchester United manager if it wasn't for them. And therefore, there's this kind of uneasy truce in which as long as he does just enough to meet the financial targets, he's the easy option for them to retain. Um, so I and, and I think that for me is the, the big fear for Manchester United supporters as he continues to do just enough that they keep him in play, but he can't actually make them competitive for the Premier League title and he um, extends this, this trophy drought um, because it's clear that they could have a more capable manager, a more capable coach in place who can get better from the resources they have at the moment and get them closer to competing for all that they're handicapped by the Glazers, for all they're handicapped by Woodward, the club structure. Um, a better coach can get more from the resources available to them, but um, it will take upsetting the Glazers, I think, for him to lose his job. Um, there's a couple of interesting reports, Duncan, I wanted to just um, get your view on um, in the last couple of days. And that was that Manchester United are actively seeking to recruit a data scientist to their staff. Um, this seems to me slightly odd in two ways. One, um, they should probably have lots of data analysis already. I'm sure they do, a whole team of them. And also uh, a director of football who actually knows about football. Um, they have been flirting with for more than 18 months now, but yet to recruit. Is a data scientist the answer for Manchester United? It's not the answer for Manchester United, obviously. There's only so much a, da a data scientist can do. Um, they do have them. If you go back to Ed Woodward's uh, last in-depth interview, he talked not only about their, uh, the massive investment in scouts and the, the supposed quality of their scouting department, he also talked about the investment in analysts and that, and that side of, of uh, football preparation. Um, but I think you you make a very good point there. If if you want to improve matters at Manchester United, one of the obvious things to do is to bring a director of football in to remove um, Ed Woodward, Matt Judge um, from these key decisions and the sort of face-to-face -face interactions with agents, with players, um, doing the base work and planning in the transfer market that people at other clubs do so well. Um, and if you bring a director of football in, then you give him the authority to change your scouting department. I think in Manchester United's case, it could easily be slimmed down and rationalised. I mean, there, there are some horror stories about things that 
scouts do at Manchester United and multiple scouts being sent to the, the same match and not knowing um, that there were two of them planning to be there. Um, you know, you talk to people in the game about their scouting setup and they're amazed at how many individuals they're using uh, to do a job worse than competitor clubs are doing uh, with far less personnel. But you'd also let that director of football be in charge of things like data science um, and analytics and allow them to bring the people in that he feels would be most effective in that role. It's very odd, um, but, you know, it is very odd at Manchester just now. And one last question uh, for this particular podcast. And of course, this is our Your Questions Answered. This one comes from... I'm a Manchester United legend who scored in the European Cup final. And the question is, why do you hate me? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not. It's from Pratik Kemkar, but it might as well be <laughs> from I'm a Manchester United legend who scored in the European Cup final. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you hate Ollie? Come on, Duncan, spill I, the beans. I don't. I don't hate Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer. As I've said many times, this podcast, he comes across as... as Generally, a very nice um, individual. Um, okay, I hate's a strong word. I think people confuse criticism uh, with hatred. Um, you know, there's a job as a football journalist. If you're going to do it in the way that we do this on the transfer podcast, is to gather information, be analytical, and you know, you write about matches, you write match reports. Um, for example, where you're asked to criticise and praise um, according to performance and according to the background to the match and the information you know it's, a, it's it's pretty hard not it's pretty hard to do the job without being critical of coaches and players um, in the way that most people expect the, the job to be done these days and you can criticize all kinds of people without having um, either love or hatred or or any great emotional attachment to them, or you could even have that. But um, I, th I think I would say there are very, very few people in football that I uh, I feel hatred for, and uh, not that many people in life either. And certainly, um, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer isn't one of them. Entirely agree. Hatred uh, and hate itself is a very, very strong emotion. And yeah, I don't think um, there's any room for it in football, and I sincerely hope. That people understand, Duncan, that when we criticise, we criticise fairly and constructively. As I have pointed out many times on our social media platforms over the last few days, her job is simply to state the facts, provide information, and then interpret and give analysis. Uh, we know that the majority of our listeners appreciate that, and that's why you come back and listen to the podcast again and again. And now we are going to give an opinion because it's our hero and villains section, because this is the first podcast of the week. Um, I'm willing to go first, Duncan, unless you are desperate to uh, put the black cloak on. And the mask of the villain. <laughs> well, go ahead, give us the hero first. Um, well, I, I do, and I love him. He's a really nice lad. Um, known him since he was a teenager at Chelsea. Patrick Bamford. I couldn't have been more happy on a personal 
basis, but also for him as a footballer. Um, on last Friday night, when he scored a hat trick for Leeds against Aston Villa, only the second hat trick of his professional career. Uh, he's 27 years old. He's been at nine different clubs. When he first came through the ranks in the Chelsea Academy, he's being hailed as the future England number nine, uh, an heir to the Alan Shearer uh, throne, etc., etc. And then he just disappeared because, as many Chelsea Academy graduates do, he signed contracts, extensions, and ended up going out on loan. Um, but eventually gave up on that and thought, I'll drop the down the division and I'll go to Leeds United. I'll sign a permanent contract with them. Uh, and even though his beginnings at Leeds were not great, uh, he won over the fans, he won over the coach. Uh, he was absolutely essential in their promotion. And then here he is now among the top scorers in the Premier League. And for me, Patrick Bamford is the Transfer Window Podcast's hero this week. Um, villain, we will go for uh, one of many candidates associated with Project Big Picture and uh, and the schism in English football at the moment. And that would be the English Football Association chairman, Greg Clark, who, not so much for being involved in the process, and, and here I'd refer you to some great reporting that's been done by David Conn at The Guardian, um, who has detailed how Greg Clark was intimately involved early on in this um, big picture plan uh, as early as January this year. Um, but for his claim that, and, and his attempt to distance himself from it uh, once the Premier League as a group decided that they weren't going to go ahead with that particular version of the proposal. Um, Clark was desperate to disassociate himself and, and present the Football Association as, as an organisation that was going to stop the, the big six clubs from having a power grab um, and getting more money from the game. Actually, if you look through the emails and uh, documents that David Conn's exposed, um, Clark started the process, continued the process, was involved in resurrecting it in September and also um, tried to pretend that he wasn't. So I think he's the only one here. I think if you read these articles, you'll see that most of the individuals in, in positions of administrative power, or certainly a lot of the individuals' positions of administrative power, are seeing that there is going to be a big shakeup in English football. And it looks like they want to be on the right end of it and want to uh, be involved in administering and, and controlling the way the go game goes when that shakeup has gone through. And that's fine. That's understandable. But what you want to see from these people is that they have, one, the best interests of the game at heart when they're doing that, and two, that they can own up to what they're actually doing. Um, so don't pretend uh, you weren't involved and it wasn't your plan and wasn't something that you were talking to, to these individuals about um, when it was something you spent a lot of time on. And, uh, you know, the one quote 
uh, here from one of his emails is, uh, this is Greg Clark talking about big picture, saying, I worry that this is too easy for the other 14 Premier League clubs to characterise project big picture as a power grab by the big six and a redistribution of revenue with a few collateral benefits to other areas of English football, which is quite prescient because that's exactly how it was presented. And then he goes on to say, this is a simplistic narrative, but large sections of the media may find it convenient. Timing is good for change. Coronavirus will also shake our industry and provide opportunities as well as threats. This offers a window of opportunity to reshape English football, which I think pretty much shows what Greg Clark's view of this actually was when he was uh, when he was talking and planning and uh, and trying to get on the right end of these changes. Indeed, and uh, we'd like to uh, put on the record at this moment in time that when the transfer window was approached, uh, both Duncan and I about getting involved in Project Big Picture, when we realised it wasn't offering us free cinema tickets, we said no. Um, so, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode, uh, of course, uh, of Your Questions Answered. Uh, it has been a while, but it's been very enjoyable. And we will certainly uh, be doing it again in the future. Um, as for the rest of the week, well, if you liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn on all notifications. And also, join the discussion on our social media platforms. We are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Duncan is on at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm at Garbo SJ. Get in touch, join the debate, keep it going. You know that we will be in touch. We'll be back later this week. But as for now, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Yeah.